Hi, and welcome to Office Hours, the broadcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary. I'm Scott Clark. Today on Office Hours, we're talking with the Reverend Dr. John Fesco, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Academic Dean at Westminster Seminary, California. John is the author of a growing number of books, and his most recent book about which we're talking today is Where is Wisdom Found? Christ in Ecclesiastes. And this book is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. You can click also on the faculty books section of the bookstore website, and you can see all the faculty books, including Dr. Fesco's ever-growing list of titles. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. It's good to be here again with you. Ecclesiastes is not a book of Holy Scripture that gets a lot of attention. Why is that? That's a good question. I can't ever remember hearing anybody quote Ecclesiastes when I was growing up in the Church, let alone preaching from it. And I think perhaps that's for two big reasons. One would be it's in the Old Testament, and many within the broader Church aren't interested in the Old Testament. But second, I think it's because Ecclesiastes had a lot of interesting things to say, and sometimes those interesting things can be difficult to understand. And so often it's the case that we will flee from what we don't understand. So I think for those two broad reasons, that's one of the reasons why we don't hear Ecclesiastes referred to that much in the Church. There are a variety of opinions about how to understand Ecclesiastes. Uh, Some take it as a Christian book in as much as it's intended to teach the faith and the truth in a believing way to believers. That's what I mean by Christian. Others take it as an expression of a non-Christian or non-believing worldview, and it's sort of placed in Scripture as an example of what not to think. How do you read Ecclesiastes? I would certainly take it as the former, in that in one sense, I think if we took the book and extracted it from the canon— it could perhaps be misinterpreted and misunderstood as a negative outlook upon life, Uh, perhaps maybe even very nihilistic. There have been some that have said that, boy, this sounds a lot like Friedrich Nietzsche, a very uh, kind of uh, nihilistic, existentialist kind of reading of the Bible. What does that mean, nihilistic and existential? Uh, Existential would be living for the moment, but at the same time, nihilistic would be combined with it that there's uh, nothing really worthwhile in the world, that it's all for naught, so let's just kind of get as much as we can for the moment and not worry about tomorrow because there probably will not be a tomorrow. And so... I think if you extracted it from the canon, you could come to that perhaps conclusion. But the thing that I think strikes me the most about it is that it's within the canon. It's part of the Old Testament. And being part of the Old Testament, it means it's part of Israel's uh, covenant relationship with God. It's been given to Israel as, as a part of this covenant dealings with them. And therefore, it's part of that context. It's part of an unfolding story. It's part of an unfolding narrative. And when you combine it with, uh, for example, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible and the prophets— I think it becomes part of a message to show uh, the ultimate futility of life apart from their covenant Lord, uh, who ultimately becomes manifest in the person and work of Christ. What does it say about us that, when I say us, I mean evangelicals and those Reformed people who think this way, that we're uncomfortable with Ecclesiastes? And, And how do we overcome our discomfort to the degree it exists? with Ecclesiastes. 
I think one of the reasons that people find discomfort with Ecclesiastes, or perhaps more broadly, wisdom literature, is that I can't remember who said it, but someone said it, that we each have a little bit of Pelagius in us, or that we have a little Pelagian sitting on our shoulders. It's certainly true, yeah. Yeah, and that we like it when people tell us what to do. Uh, I had a, a prominent preacher that I was once speaking to tell me that a very wealthy member of his congregation approached him and said, look, I'm getting tired of you not telling us what to do. Just tell us what to do. Tell me what to do, and uh, and, and and I'll do it. And so I think we're very much like to-do lists, and I think that that's one of the things that you don't find in the wisdom literature. In wisdom literature, for example, in the Proverbs, answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So it seems to present seemingly contradictory advice, and I think a lot of people find that um, troubling, and so they're not quite sure what to do with it. But I think what happens is that we have to come to a point where that the wisdom literature ultimately represents the mind of Christ. And when we say when I say the mind of Christ, I mean it's what do we do in those gray areas of life? What do we do when there doesn't appear to be a clear path that perhaps a situation is not addressed by the law uh, with its imperatives? How are we to respond? So in some contexts, it's to answer the fool according to his folly, to show him his foolishness. But in other contexts, no, you don't want the fool to be wise in his own eyes, so you don't answer the fool. And that's not to say it's situational ethics, but rather uh, it's to say that Different contexts and different uh, situations call sometimes for different responses, but all of them are wrapped up in wisdom. And where do we receive wisdom? But through the Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit, and through by by Christ Himself, as He conforms our mind uh, to His mind, and so that our thinking is conformed to the image uh, of God. You've used this really essential word several times now. You've used it to describe a body of literature within Scripture. You've used it as a noun, and the word is wisdom. Mm-hmm. That's also not a word we hear a great deal. We Sometimes we hear it, but uh, it, it's that word is not as prominent, let's say, in discussions of the nature of the Christian life and in the uh, business of Christian decision-making mm-hmm. as a lot of other words. People are much more likely to say in particularly in broad evangelical circles, well, the Lord led me to do X, Y, or Z. There mm-hmm. rarely are you going to hear people say, wisdom seemed to dictate mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z. First of all, what is wisdom? Uh, wisdom uh, is applied knowledge. That's a very basic definition, uh, and it's not necessarily one that's uh, restricted to the Scriptures, but it's applied knowledge. In other words, if you have a body of knowledge uh, you don't want it just to sit there. You want to use it in everyday life. So how is it that you would uh, use it? And so that's a very, very broad definition. Uh, secondly, I think we would say that as far as the wisdom literature of the Scriptures are concerned, we're dealing with books such as uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, with Job, uh, portions of the Psalms, or of course the Proverbs. And uh, so that it captures this applied knowledge view of life, if you will. Uh, What do we do with the law when the law doesn't address every situation? How do we handle those circumstances in life? Say, for example, with Job, you have an individual who is very righteous and who, uh, at least according to uh, moral human standards, has done nothing wrong, and 
as far as we can tell, he's lived in obedience to the Lord, but yet he still suffers. The common common knowledge or common understanding would say, well, if you disobey, then you get punished. Bad things happen to you. If you obey, good things happen to you. Well, what do you have or what happens when that is turned on its head and you have someone who obeys, but yet, at least from external appearances, looks like he's being punished for something? That doesn't fit into the equation. And so that's why wisdom and wisdom literature addresses these circumstances and these types of situations in life. John, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, it says, "...the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem." What do those words mean, and how do you understand that? And how important is that question? What I'm really asking here is about the authorship Mm -hmm. of Ecclesiastes. That, in one sense, is a very difficult question to answer. Some would seem to think that it's not. I think uh, church tradition has typically assigned uh, authorship of this book to King Solomon. And certainly there are many portions of Ecclesiastes that lend itself to that. But on the other hand, uh, I'm a firm believer in doing our best to try to follow the text of Scripture as closely as we can. And so all we can say with any degree of certainty is that it's the words of the preacher, uh, quite literally, kohelet is the word, and it's, it's one who stands before the kahal, the congregation, the assembly, and addresses them. So that's why it's translated as preacher. So he's know that he's someone who addresses the people of Israel as they're gathered together corporately. We know that he's a descendant of David, and we know that he's also king in Jerusalem. So we don't know for certain that it is Solomon. Now, does the book hang on whether or not it's Solomon or not? No, I don't think it does. Uh, I think that it's basically like the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but that doesn't in any way uh, mitigate its uh, inspiration or its place in the canon, but rather it just helps us to understand a little bit of the context as to who actually is writing this. The name of the author, the title that he takes for himself— has some significance, right? You you indicated it briefly. And maybe mm-hmm. you can elaborate on that. When he calls himself Koheleth mm-hmm. and uh, pictures for us a, con- a gathering of an assembly, it's not just any assembly, is it? Correct. No, no. It's the gathering of corporate Israel for worship, in effect. And so he has a unique ability and place to address the people, and then arguably address them prophetically, even. And so you could make a case to say that here you have the king, uh, someone who is a king. Uh, You have someone who is also a prophet, uh, two of Christ's offices. So this, in some sense, you know, foreshadowing Christ addressing us as well. But uh, but yes, here within the immediate context, that's all we can say about the author. And again, I don't think that you know that anything crucial hangs upon who actually wrote the book, other than to say that it's the preacher. He's a son of David, and he is king in Jerusalem at the time of his writing. Contrast the opening of the book with the end of the book. What, what does that tell us uh, about uh, Ecclesiastes? Right. I think that. Um, The opening of the book, and certainly throughout uh, portions of the book, it presents a very bleak outlook upon life. And in fact, one of the things that I told my congregation when when I preached through this book was I wanted them to feel the crushing weight of the observations. I think we often have too much of a Pollyanna view of life, and perhaps that's part and parcel of where we live in the world, in that we live in 
what is perhaps the wealthiest nation on the planet. We have so many of the creature comforts. We have so many conveniences. And some people might think, well, I'm not all that wealthy. Well, in comparison with the rest of the world, yes, we're all royalty, really, in effect. And so we don't recognize the complexities of life, the difficulties that we often find in life, and often the tragedies and and what the preacher observes here or uh, the Kohelet observes here are the vanities of life, where he says, uh, he just talks about the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. The place where the streams flow there, they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. And so he goes on and on talking about just in one sense how endless the monotony and the futility of life is. You have other statements where the the prophet and or the sorry the preacher here says, "For in much wisdom is vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow." In one sense, that seems very antithetical to the message of the Bible. Why would we think that there's vexation in wisdom? Aren't we supposed to pursue wisdom? Isn't there? Uh, isn't it good to know more? And I think the preacher really wanted to convey to Israel that. Um, he wanted to show the, the 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 significance of the crushing blow of fallen living in a fallen world, and uh, that's something that we often don't wrestle with. Perhaps because of the modern conveniences that we have, uh, we don't worry about droughts because we have sprinkler systems. We don't worry about uh, raising cattle and cow disease because we pick up our steaks in the grocery store. Uh, but for Israel, it, it was different, and I think this is a good reminder for us to see this the utter futility that exists in life because of living in a sin-fallen world. We're talking with John Fesco, and we're discussing his book, Where Wisdom is Found, Christ in Ecclesiastes. It's available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. When we come back, we're going to ask John a, a very significant question about the interpretation of Ecclesiastes. And really the significance in some ways of this book for Christians. And we'll get to that right after this. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character, Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of training men for ministry and preparing them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. There's a great deal of dissatisfaction mm-hmm. with the state of things in Ecclesiastes. This is one of the things that troubles people when they, if they ever read Ecclesiastes, is this theme of of wind chasing Mm -hmm. and futility. Mm -hmm. I guess I have two questions here. Okay. First, what does this theme of futility in Ecclesiastes say to us about the, and I'm going to use a big word here, eschatology Mm -hmm. of the book? And by eschatology, I mean, in general, uh, how the writer views this life, this world, mm-hmm. before the consummation. Sure. 
one of the things that we always need to do when we interpret any portion of the Scriptures, say, for example, as our doctrinal standard states, say the Westminster Confession, that Scripture interprets Scripture, is that we want to look at Ecclesiastes not only by itself, but also in the context of the broader canon of Scripture. And when the author is talking about the futility of life, the vanity, as some translations have it, we think we have to understand that he talks about life under the sun. Uh, And when he talks about life under the sun, it's almost as if he's looking at it from a this-worldly-world perspective. That is, let's contemplate existence apart from God for the sake of discussion, is almost in a roundabout way what he's doing. And he says, as I look around me, he says, I see a lot of futility. I see people chasing after the wind like dogs chasing their tails. And so then we ask the question, do the Scriptures anywhere else talk about futility or vanity? And they do. In the eighth chapter of Romans, which in the end I think is uh, the interpretive key, really, for the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8, in verses 18 and following, "...for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God." Now here in verse 20, and it's in the Greek or in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the Septuagint, you find the same word in Ecclesiastes. He says, "...for the creation was subjected to futility or vanity." would be another way of translating it, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So I think that what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying is he's saying, if you want to live life under the sun, apart from God, then all you have to look forward to is futility. All you have to look forward to is the curse that has come upon the earth and man because of man's sinfulness and rebellion against uh, his creator. But on the other hand, if you want to look beyond life under the sun, if you want to look to the end of all things and to the one who brings all things to a conclusion, to our covenant Lord and to his Messiah, then it is through the Messiah that this futility, that this vanity is removed. And so that we do not, as Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, labor in vain, but rather we labor uh, for uh, the kingdom of God and to see the consummation of all things. And so in that sense, one of the things I like to tell my students or the people in my congregation when I was a pastor is you can't understand one part of the story apart from the greater whole. And in this case, you can't understand the author of Ecclesiastes apart from what Paul says about the end of all things, which is a good reason as to why you brought up eschatology or the consummation of all things. The second part of the question then is, from the point of view of Ecclesiastes, whence the futility? Why is there so much frustration? Uh, Why is nothing ever in this life ultimately satisfying? Uh, Because in the end, uh, things don't abide forever, and because of man's fallen state, because of his sinful condition, um, we have this idea, for example, we see this, and I, I talk about this in the book, that how often do we see man building his empires in the sand? in that you have the Great Wall of China, uh, took hundreds of years to build, and you had uh, millions of people building it, and perhaps even millions of people dying uh, to build this thing. And yet, 
where is it today? It's being eaten by the earth, and literally miles of it disappear each mm. year. Each year, as it uh, just decays, you have the great pyramids of Egypt uh, that were built. And yes, from a distance, they look like they're uh, pretty well built. But as you get up close, you realize, boy, these things are falling apart. Mm. And so, again, it's man saying. I want to live on my terms, and if man wants to live on his own terms, then that's it. That's all there is, is decay, uh, futility, and vanity, uh, and uh, in the end, nothing. Uh, whereas if we submit ourselves to the, the the lordship of God in Christ, which is something that we can only do by God's grace through faith in Christ, uh, then there isn't vanity, there isn't futility, there is completion, there is rest. Uh, come ye all who are weary and laden, and I will give you rest. And so Christ gives us fulfillment and rest and peace in contrast to the never-ending cycle of uh, futility for sinful man who refuses to bow the knee to Christ. The subtitle of your book is Christ in Ecclesiastes. Mm-hmm. What on earth are you talking about? <laughs> how, how, Fesco, if I can play devil's advocate for a sure. moment, how did you manage to wedge Christ into Ecclesiastes? If there was any book in the canon of Scripture where you just couldn't, on any reasonable reading, find Christ, it would have to be Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities saith the preacher, all is vanity, all is wind chasing, mm-hmm. such is life under the sun. That That's not a book where you can find Christ. Well, that's certainly a common approach, and I think that's one of the things that uh, I wanted to disprove. In particular, for example, you have Christ when he was addressing the crowds around him in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 5, verse 39, he tells them, you search the Scriptures— Now, understand at this point, as you know, and I I think uh, most of our listeners should know that the scriptures that Christ refers to is the Old Testament. So we could gloss this and say, you search the Old Testament because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, that is the Old Testament scriptures, that bear witness about me. And so here, uh, Christ very clearly says, the Old Testament bears witness about me. Uh, the secondly, you have Paul, for example, addressing the Corinthians in First Corinthians chapter one and verse thirty, where he says, "He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and redemption." The idea here is that it's Christ who is the ultimate fulfillment of wisdom, so that when we discuss wisdom or we're reading about wisdom in the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, or in this case in Ecclesiastes, uh, we are talking ultimately about Christ. And so it's—I don't think—some uh, may think I'm trying to wedge Christ in there, but uh, Jesus himself would say, no, I- I'm there. And not only am I there, but here is Paul saying that Christ is uh, our, our wisdom, and he is the one— uh, that we receive wisdom from and through. And so that's how uh, Ecclesiastes uh, addresses wisdom and is talking about Christ, ultimately. How do you avoid setting up a situation whereby someone says, I have wisdom, therefore I have Christ? There's a difference, I think, between human wisdom and scriptural wisdom or godly wisdom or the wisdom of Christ, in that I one of the things I say in the book that wisdom is not necessarily sage old men stroking their beards, contemplating uh, the um, the mysteries of life. 
That's certainly sometimes how it's portrayed in movies and in in popular culture. But rather, uh, wisdom is taking the knowledge of the gospel. It's taking even perhaps the law that we find in the scriptures and applying it in a God-honoring way. Uh, and employing the the knowledge of God in in that God-honoring way so that when we find, for example, Jesus, the righteous man who has done no wrong, who has never sinned, and nevertheless yet he suffers, that's where we find the wisdom uh, of God in Christ. And it's one of the things I say at at a point in the book, it's a cruciform wisdom. It's It's wisdom that is shaped and is characterized by the cross of Christ, so that to the world, it looks backwards. Uh, It looks uh, upside down. But to the Christian who sees things through the lens of Scripture, who understands things through Christ, we understand that though we may be righteous, the world will persecute us. And it's not that we've done anything wrong, but rather it's because God is forming Christ in us through the work of the Spirit. John, this is a collection of sermons Mm -hmm. that you preached through Ecclesiastes. Preachers who are listening to this right now are thinking to themselves, my lands, is this fellow crazy? Has he lost <laughs> his mind? Uh, I couldn't possibly preach the book of, of Ecclesiastes to my congregation. What do you say to the preacher who's reticent to preach Ecclesiastes? In one sense, I want to say I completely understand the trepidation. <laughs> I myself had great trepidation about it. Uh, but th- you did it anyway, so <laughs> right. how did you overcome that? Right. Well, I think I constantly had uh, my New Testament in hand, so to speak, and constantly reflecting back and forth between the Testaments. And I wanted to show the congregation how Christ was organically there in the text, and it wasn't being superimposed by myself or by anyone else. But I I think so that in that sense, I think that, you know, fear not and, and proceed boldly. Um, and again, who of us is going to preach a perfectly impeccable sermon? That's not that's not the case. But certainly, you study ahead of time before you get into the pulpit, uh, even uh, months ahead of time, to make sure that you understand the overall scope. But particularly, I think why I would encourage uh, people, uh, ministers in particular, not only to uh, study but also to preach the book, is that uh, I think that Ecclesiastes so so addresses our contemporary context so poignantly and powerfully. I don't want to say like no other book of the Bible, uh, because all of us are certainly sinners, and the Scriptures address our need for salvation and our need for the forgiveness of sins. But there are so many passages that I thought as I read through the through the book, boy, this is so relevant um, to, for example, the youth in our day, uh, who have become, in many ways, much like the preacher at many points in terms of asking these questions, is there anything worthwhile? Is there anything truthful? Uh, isn't this all just uh, for nothing? And I, f- I find uh, the preacher's words echoing in many different parts uh, of culture, really. And so I thought for that reason it was a very, and is a very relevant book because mm. it's so uh, answers so many of these uh, current questions. And to say the least, it's the Word of God. Correct. I mean, the Holy Spirit, when he gave this literature mm-hmm. to his people and preserved it and included it into the canon of Scripture, it was received by the apostolic church, mm-hmm. and it's been a part of and received as a part of the canon, the rule 
of Holy Scripture throughout the entirety of Christian history. So it's really about getting to grips with preaching the whole counsel of yes. God and doing so in a way that reflects the particularity mm-hmm. of a given book, right. but also its connection to the, as you were saying earlier, the one, the broader unity yes. of Scripture, which, though it has particular authors, mm-hmm. also has a common authorship, right? Right. The Holy Spirit. Now, this volume is uh, divided into 15 short chapters, mm-hmm. and, and at the end, there are uh, study questions at the end of each chapters, four or five study questions. Are there other resources to which you could direct people after they get and read mm-hmm. this book? Mm-hmm. John Fesco, Where Wisdom is Found, Christ and Ecclesiastes, available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash Bookstore, after they get and read this book, what other volumes on Ecclesiastes might you recommend? I think that there are two that come to mind, at least for the average person in the pew. One is a small little slender volume by Derek Kidner, a well-known Old Testament scholar, called A Time to Dance. And I think it's an eminently readable uh, interpretation uh, Yes, uh, of Ecclesiastes. Another one is uh, published by Banner of Truth, and it's Charles Bridges' uh, commentary on Ecclesiastes. It's a little dated in terms of its language at times, but I still think it's readable. And um, that's, I think, a very good resource, I think, for the pastor— who's interested perhaps in preaching upon uh, this passage of Scripture, I'm sorry, or this book of Scripture, it would be uh, Roland Murphy's uh, commentary in the Word Biblical Commentary series on Ecclesiastes. I found that to be uh, very helpful as well. And in general, though, one of the most uh, helpful resources that I found, I think, as a preacher as well as just as a as a, someone looking at the scriptures to understand them better, is uh, D.A. Carson and Greg Beale's uh, edited volume, the New Testament commentary on the use of the Old Testament. I think that that often helps the reader or the one who's studying or the one who's preaching get the overall trajectory of understanding how the uh, New Testament uses the Old Testament and what's the relationship between the two, and really in, in many respects to show how Christ stands at the center of the Scriptures. It seems to me that the end of Ecclesiastes is pretty significant, and that's mm-hmm. probably a good way to bring this discussion to an end. Mm-hmm. The last verse says, or the next to last verse, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man— For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. What's Mm -hmm. the significance of that verse? I think that what it's telling us is it's ultimately telling us that, going back to one of the first questions you asked me, that this is, I don't know how else to put it, but a Christian reflection upon these things. It's Mm -hmm. not the thoughts of an unbeliever, and I think that's especially poignantly made with those closing verses— in that the author is saying that the key to life is in the fear of the Lord and in obedience. Uh, this is not to say that he's offering salvation by works. He's not. The, 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 the points in Ecclesiastes, I think, show that he's not. It's by faith in Christ. Uh, but that he's saying that in spite of the futility that we might see, uh, in spite of the apparent disarray, the apparent chaos, there is purpose, there is meaning, 
and in that respect, I think that what you have, and the way Charles Bridges, I think, uh, describes it is you have a germ of the gospel here, a small seed of the gospel, mm-hmm. in that what the author here at the close of Ecclesiastes says, I think Paul expands in Romans chapter 8 at greater length and is explaining that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And uh, how he goes on there in 829, for those who have been called have been justified, and those who have been justified have been glorified. And then he goes on to conclude there that we are more than conquerors, and that though we are uh, as sheep to be slaughtered, uh, that doesn't mean that God has forgotten us. And I think so in many respects, Ecclesiastes and Romans chapter 8 present a antiphonal response that if Ecclesiastes calls out mm. one part of the uh, antiphon, then you have the Romans chapter 8 giving the response to, to Ecclesiastes. So in that sense, I think that's why it's, it's ultimately a message filled with hope. Well, that's it for this edition of Office Hours. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Clark. Thanks to our producer, Robert Riccio, to Young Me for graphics, and to Adam Klaus for technical assistance. You can listen to Office Hours online at wscal.edu slash officehours, or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. We want to hear from you. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Or now you can call us at 760-278-1725, 760-278-1725. Leave a message, and we may use it in a future broadcast. For more information about Office Hours or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online, or you can call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.